Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is James Berman. He is the president and founder of jbglobal.com, which is a registered investment advisory firm, and he is known as a value investor. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, James. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Jordan. Thank you. Just give us a brief history of kind of your training and how you came to to found this money management firm. Well, my training is very sketchy. I started out as a lawyer, became what's known as a reformed lawyer, one who doesn't practice, and then became a registered investment advisor when I realized I was much more interested in investing. And one of the reasons I did that was because I took a year off from law school to study uh, all the shareholder letters of the great oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett. And once I did that, I was converted. It was a, it was a religious conversion. I said, wow, there is a way of doing good and making money and something that finally made sense to me as a discipline. And so uh, I immersed myself in Buffett, started auditing some business school classes, registered as an investment advisor, and uh, started off managing money for the friends and family who were either loyal enough or uh, silly enough to invest with me. But then I developed a good track record. And here I am. So just give us what has been your track record over the long term. Well, I have a model growth portfolio, which is my main portfolio that invests uh, exclusively in stocks or stock ETFs, so exchange-traded funds that are in stocks. And the 20-year record on that is a cumulative performance of 246%, uh, which compares to 189% for the Vanguard S&P Index Fund. And that is net of all fees and expenses except taxes. So, um, you know, a fairly wide outperformance, but I should caution all listeners to know that I have portfolios that have done worse and better. And so if you're interested in reviewing my full performance history, it's important to visit my website at jbglobal.com and review the performance history and all its details, but also the disclaimer information. So the religion that you converted to is value investing, basically. Yes, And you've had a good uh, track record at a time when value investing has not done well at all, basically the last 10 years or so. So how did you do that? How did your value investing style work when, in in general, value investing was not working? Well, I have underperformed the past five years, but I had enough good performance going into those five years that it made up for it. Uh, Value investing has done terribly the past five years. Actually, as you say, more like a decade. It's been a lost decade for value investing. If you look at the S&P over the past 10 years, uh, it's done about uh, 11% and uh, the value indices have done about 8 So that's been quite a lot of underperformance. But value investing is cyclical. When I first started in the business, I started in 97 96 and 97, that was the worst possible time to be a value investor because that was the beginning of the dot-com mania. And so for three years there, I underperformed. I only had a few clients at the time. And even of my few clients, I would get lots of angry calls. Why didn't you buy pets.com? It's up 50% since we last spoke. And I would say, well, 
I don't know. Buffett would tell you not to buy it because it can't be valued. It really doesn't have any revenues and certainly no cash flows. And then two weeks would pass and I would get another call. And you can imagine what that was. You idiot. <laughs> Why didn't you buy pets.com? It's up another 100% since we spoke. In the end, pets.com was worth nothing but the sock puppet that was sold at auction. And that was a vindication of sorts because value investing has the tremendous disadvantage of being out of favor for long periods of time, but it has the tremendous advantage of sustainably over long periods of time outperforming most other strategies. Why do you think value investing has underperformed so dramatically for the last five to 10 years? Well, value goes through these periods. I mean, the same thing happened from 96 to 2000, and it was, this, I would say, the same cause. It was the, that momentum investing, usually generated by tech stocks, captures the public imagination. And when technology stocks, such as the FANG stocks, the Facebook, the Amazon, the Netflix, the Google, when those capture the public imagination, nothing else can compete because those stocks will go up exponentially. And so then value investing loses any allure it has because it looks boring, it looks slow, and it is. But what happens every several years is then those momentum trades become very crowded, as traders would call them, overly subscribed to, and then they collapse. And that's what happened in March of 2000. After the NASDAQ hit its high then of 5048, it collapsed by 78%. And so what happens is you go through these booms and busts in momentum stocks. Whenever there's a boom in momentum stocks, value gets left behind. It just can't compete. But whenever there's a bust in momentum stocks, value gets reclaimed because it's the only thing that works again. But as I tell people, don't look at the cycles. Look at the secular history, meaning the history over a generation, because value investing over any generation has beaten momentum investing. So and where of course, are we in the cycle right now, do you think? I mean, we've had quite a long period of uh, outperformance by the momentum stocks. Is this, and, and how can you tell when uh, you know, it's reaching its peak and it's about to fall? You can't. And that's one reason I don't try to move back and forth between styles. I think that's a recipe for disaster and getting whipsawed. I stick to my style. My style will be out of favor at times. People will leave me. Clients leave me during that time. I could try to move into the other style to try to keep those people happy. But I know from experience, if I do that, then I'm going to get whipsawed and so will they. So I stick to my discipline, which is what I know. It's the only thing that's based on intrinsic value, which I'll explain if we get into it later, is the most important thing in the world. And so I don't try to predict when one will be out of favor and one will be in favor. I just can tell you that just like wide neckties and narrow neckties, one will come back into favor eventually. And so you have to wait it out because there is no way of predicting short-term market movements, in my opinion. And that's one of the underpinnings of the value philosophy is that short-term market movements cannot be predicted. So by definition, you should spend zero time on them. As uh, Peter Lynch liked to say, who was a legendary value manager, or some people considered him growth, I considered him value because he looked at intrinsic value. As he liked to say, if you spend seven minutes trying to predict the economy or the movements in the markets, you've wasted eight minutes. 
know. So, uh, you know, the macro, these are things that are unknowable. What's knowable at all times is value because it's a balance sheet. It's a snapshot. It's a moment in time. It's not a crystal ball. And that's the difference. So why don't you just briefly go through the process that you look at to value a stock to see if it's undervalued or overvalued? What, what are some of the things that you look for uh, to find value? I start with the basic premise that if you're looking at value, what you're looking at is intrinsic value. What is the business really worth? Which means you're not looking at stocks as blips in a video game. You are looking at them for what they actually are, which is equity claims on the cash flows of a business. And if you start thinking of it as a business, it all becomes more clear. So if you start thinking of it as a business, it's an approach that anyone would use with any business. As I tell my students, because I teach at NYU, if you were buying a gas station, if you were buying a McDonald's franchise, if you were buying a farm, or even if you were buying a rental property, you would look at this, and Jordan, you, you know, you've written about this, you would look at this based on the cash flows the asset can produce. And so there should be nothing different about that when you look at a stock. People get removed from stocks because they're more abstract. They can't touch it. They can't feel it. They can't extract all the uh, owner earnings from the company, the free cash flow, because that's not up to them. That's up to the board of directors declaring a dividend. So for them, it becomes very attenuated. They lose track of what they're doing. And what you're actually doing is buying a business. So if you're buying a business, it is widely accepted that the value of any business, and it could be a hot dog stand, the value of any business is literally the free cash flows that business will produce over time, projected into the future. That's a hard thing to do because we got to project them into the future, but you can do it conservatively. Discounted back to the present at some rate that reflects the risk of the investment. And so that is the way any rational buyer looks at buying, as I say, a private business. And it is the same way that anyone should look at buying a stock. So to speak plainly about it, it's really looking at the free cash flows on the business and seeing if the free cash flow yield, and by free cash flows, I mean all the money that the company produces after it's paid all its expenses, including capital expenditures. And it's not net income, because that's a gap calculation, which is based on a lot of weird stuff like depreciation, amortization. Free cash flow is real money. It's the real money that the owners of the business are entitled to. And so I look at free cash flow on the free cash flow statement. And one quick and dirty way to do it is you take the free cash flow Let's say for business X, it's $100 million, and you divide it by the market capitalization of that business. And let's say that business is valued in the marketplace at a billion dollars. Well, that's a 10% free cash flow yield. In other words, that business is generating $100 million for owners based on a price in the market of a billion, 10%. They may not be paying that full 10% out in a dividend. Typically, they're not. But if they're not paying it out in a dividend... They are, however, then using the rest that they don't pay out to either buy back stock or reinvest in the business, which equally add value for shareholders. 
So one easy way to look at businesses as a value investor is look at that free cash flow yield. And that basically is what Buffett does when he buys companies. He looks at how much cash they produce. And he looks at it on a conservative basis. And he doesn't look for growth because growth is so hard to predict. Instead, he looks for what the business is producing now. And that is such a qualitatively different way of looking at things because you are looking at something real, not projected. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this hour is James Berman. He is president and founder of jbglobal.com, which is a money management firm specializing in uh, value investing. And you can find out more at his website, jbglobal.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune into Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is James Berman. He is the president and founder of jbglobal.com, which is a registered investment advisory firm. He's also a professor at NYU. He also writes a column in in Forbes quite a a bit, and his expertise is value investing. Welcome back to the show, James. Good to be back. So we were talking about uh, looking at the free cash flow. If everybody can see the same numbers, why do bargains ever exist? I mean, the, the, the random walk theory says that the market is completely efficient 
everybody can see the same numbers. So why do companies become undervalued if people can value these free cash flows you talk about? Well, that is an excellent question and one my students ask all the time. A uh, couple things. First of all, how many people do you know who actually read free cash flow statements? Not that many. <laughs> okay. So we start with that. I mean, the reality is this information is all publicly available. It's all in the public domain. It is, you know, it is put out there by filings, quarterly filings. But I find that most people don't spend much time on it. In fact, there is a statistic to show, which I'm sure you've heard, that the average person spends several hours researching an appliance purchase that costs $500 and spends about five minutes researching a stock purchase that costs 500000 So there is something cognitively strange about the way people approach stocks. One of the reasons being it's just so easy to buy them with a click. And it's so easy to buy them on a tip. So most people actually don't do their due diligence when they buy stocks. So I always talk about the efficient market hypothesis. And I don't believe in the strong form, which means the strong form of the efficient market hypothesis says that prices are always exactly what intrinsic value is at any moment. I don't think that – I don't believe that. And I'll give you a couple examples of why. I believe in what's called the weak form not the no form. The no form says that there's no relation. So the, I believe in the weak form, which says, well, markets are pretty efficient, but they go through periods where they're extremely inefficient. And we know this is true because we have had the dot-com collapse. And in the dot-com collapse, as I mentioned a little earlier in the interview, you had a stock called Pets.com, one of the first internet retailers, that was valued at a billion dollars in the marketplace and several months later in 2000, filed for bankruptcy, and the only asset left was the sock puppet that it had used in its Super Bowl ads that sold for a few thousand bucks. So it went from a billion dollars to a sock puppet in a few months. There's no way a rational market can explain that. When I, when I, when I explain that little anecdote to efficient market professors at NYU who I talk to, they say, well... No, that can be easily explained. The value of the company at a billion was a billion, and the value of the company at a sock puppet was a sock puppet. So then I say to them, which is the thing I'm holding in reserve, but do you know no new financials were announced during that period? There wasn't even time. There was no new 10K. Nothing was learned. The revenues were terrible before and after. So the only thing that changed was psychology. And so I believe in the opposite of the efficient market hypothesis strong form, which is called behavioral finance, which says that at times people get carried away by fear and greed. Fear of being left out is a form of greed or fear of losing money. And that's why Buffett says you've got to be a contrarian investor. You've got to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. You've got to do the opposite of what most people are doing because that's how you make the money. The other refutation of the efficient market hypothesis is the fact that if you had invested 40 years ago $10,000 in the S&P index fund, well, you'd have a respectable half a million dollars today. But if you had invested in a partnership run by Warren Buffett that turned into Berkshire Hathaway, you'd have an astonishing $103 million today. The difference between a half a million dollars and $103 million is just extraordinary. Now, there will never be another Buffett, 
Certainly my returns, although I've beaten the S&P index over the past 20 years, have come nothing close to Buffett. I try every day to get better. I don't know how to quite emulate Buffett. It doesn't seem like anyone does now. But the point is, if you can beat just one-tenth of one percent or one-hundredth of one percent as successful as Buffett, you'll deliver great returns for your shareholders and yourself. So I don't really believe in the efficient market hypothesis in the strong form. And there's a joke I tell my students about the efficient market hypothesis, which is two NYU professors are walking through Washington Square Park, and they're discussing the efficient market hypothesis because they believe in it. They believe in the random walk. They've read Burton Malkiel's book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, and they're walking through the park, and they see a $20 bill on the floor, on the ground there, and one says to the other, look, there's a $20 bill, and the other one, because he's an EMH guy, says, that can't be a $20 bill. If that were a $20 bill, someone would have already picked it up. And they walk on. <laughs> so I always say, don't, you know, we know $20 bills are hard to spot. You don't spot many $20 bills lying on the street. Why? Because most people pick them up as soon as they see them. But we all know the experience that sometimes you see one. That's the middle form of the efficient market hypothesis. There are opportunities. They're just few and far between. And you got to wait for them. How do you know when it's an opportunity and when it's so-called value trap? where the numbers look good, but it can stay depressed pretty much forever. That's the most miserable part of my business, and I've been burned by value traps. I mean, my worst experience with a value trap, uh, well, first, as you already explained what a value trap is, but I might just explain a little more before I tell you my terrible yeah. experience. I mean, it's really a business where you calculate the intrinsic value on your best assumptions, even conservative assumptions, and the intrinsic value looks very high relative to the market price. And so you think to yourself, this is a home run. And then you think to yourself, well, let me make it even more conservative and see. Let's assume growth is only half as much as I expect it to be. Is the intrinsic value still much higher than the market price? And it is. <laughs> and then you invest. And what you don't realize, uh, because you wouldn't have invested in it otherwise, is that the company is literally imploding in slow motion. In other words, the company looks cheap, but it isn't cheap because the business model has been decimated. So what's and, an example of a value trap that you've had that you, you didn't get out of? Well, in the early 2000s, I invested in a uh, company that everyone will recognize <laughs> the unhappy ending here. It was called AIG, an insurance oh, company. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I owned that um, going into 08, 09. And what happened, uh, as anyone who knows the story, was that AIG was insuring credit default swaps on corporations that didn't have great prospects. And they had not offloaded this risk. They had sort of claimed to through off-balance sheet vehicles, but the reality was they had retained all the risk. And when the credit default swaps came due, because effectively those were insurance and other companies going bust, AIG was rendered bust by the fact that it had such massive obligations. So this was a value trap that I did not spot. And the lesson I learned from that was that financial companies – uh, and Buffett talks about this. Chris Davis, a noted value investor, talks about this. A lot of people do now, especially in the wake of the crisis. I should have listened to some who talked about it before the crisis, as some did. 
A financial firm is a black box. You never actually know what you're doing with your money, with their money. Morningstar's reports leading up to 0809 at AIG suggested that AIG had the equity capital to absorb even massive losses on its credit default swaps. But the reality was that they had such huge liability that they had not modeled correctly. And as an investor, and I don't blame AIG, I blame myself, because as an investor, I should have seen that there was no transparency on the balance sheet. It was impossible for me with my limited outlook and my limited insight into the company to actually get a handle on what the liabilities were. And I really suffered. That was uh, one of the worst investments I ever made, and I suffered a terrible loss. So you, you stay away from financial firms because of that? I don't entirely, but I am so wary in the, in the wake of that. So I am an investor in J.P. Morgan Chase, and I own that for myself and my clients and my fund. But one of the reasons I'm an investor in J.P. Morgan Chase is I take to heart something Chris Davis said at a conference in 2009, which is you can only invest in a financial firm if the CEO is also the chief risk officer. In other words, the CEO is so hands-on that they know every dollar of the balance sheet and every dollar at risk. And Jamie Dimon is well known for that. The day Jamie Dimon leaves Chase, I'm not sure I'm going to be a shareholder. No. So I am very wary of financial firms. I look for very low levels of leverage. You know, Usually 10 to 1 assets to equity would be the maximum. And still I can't get comfortable with most conservatively leveraged banks or financial firms. So I look for those financial firms that, as Buffett says, and this was a lesson I should have heeded from Buffett, the ones that really stick to the basic knitting of financial services. In other words, banks that actually make their money on lending spreads. They don't engage in a lot of prop trading or dangerous things or insuring credit default swaps or doing or having a lot of off-balance sheet vehicles, things like that. So I have a lot of rigorous screens I put financials through. But to answer your question, I don't avoid them completely because sometimes money center banks or regional banks are superb investments. I haven't got burned since, but if, we haven't had another financial crisis since. <laughs> yes, so we'll see what happens. Well, it sounds like value investors can learn. Uh, do you think there's anything you have in your portfolio today that you would consider a value trap? Well, these are the things that keep me up at night. Um, I mean, I do own J.P. Morgan Chase, and J.P. Morgan Chase, despite the fine stewardship of, of Jamie Dimon, could always be a value trap because you don't, you know, I have no way. I am relying on his expertise and his reputation, but also the fact that I've listened to many conference calls and been very impressed with his incredible micro knowledge of the business. But, you know, I worry about J.P. Morgan Chase every day because it's still something that could be. And then I own, for example, a value investment that I've made that hasn't panned out too well recently is Michael's, which is a craft store. Well, one of the reasons I bought that is it's one of the few retailers that's holding its own in sales against Amazon and is actually, unlike all the retail apocalypse you read about, actually doing quite well. But the stock has not done well recently, which is fine when you're a value investor because you never expect it to do well in the first couple of years you buy it. But what keeps me up at night and something I'm checking the facts on every day is 
is the model of buying even craft arts and crafts, which I think is a more interactive, more retail experience, is that also shifting to Amazon? Because if it is, lights out at Michael's. Very good. So right, we're going to take another couple, break. Yeah, sure. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is James Berman. He's president and founder at jbglobal.com, which is a registered investment advisory firm. Uh, and you can find out more at his website, jbglobal.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is James Berman, president and founder of jbglobal.com, which is a registered investment advisory firm. He specializes in value investing. You can find out more at his website, jbglobal.com. Welcome back to the show, James. Thank you. So we've been talking about value traps and kind of depressed things. Let's go the complete opposite now and talk about Bitcoin, which had a huge surge, bubble-like surge, I guess, and then like a massive collapse. Uh, what do you advise people who want to kind of play the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency game? Well, I have simple advice. Don't touch them. But the reason I say that, and I said that at Bitcoin 14,000, which is before it actually got to its high of 19,000, so again, I had clients angry at me, <laughs> is because you can't value a currency. And it's not because it's a cryptocurrency. It could be the yen. It could be the pound. It could be the Swiss franc. The reality is, and this is why I don't believe in currency trading, although I know there are a lot of currency traders out there who are going to be angry at this, but... The reality is, if you use Buffett's methods of valuation, they are predicated on what I said before, that you look at the cash flows the asset produces. And a currency in and of itself, whether it's a currency that's a fiat currency that's issued by a government and backed by the full faith and credit of that government, or whether it's tied to, say, gold, or whether it is a cryptocurrency, it doesn't matter what kind of currency it is. It produces no cash flows. And therefore, it's not that it's not valuable. It's that it can't be valued. 
There is no way to value Bitcoin. I mean, today, if you said to me, and I know people have tried to come up with algorithms to value it, but at $3,700 a Bitcoin, I can't tell you if Bitcoin is worth 20000 or zero or anything in between. And I can't even, it's not just that I can't tell you that, I can't even give you a range within 20%. Because no. there is no logical basis for doing so. Because it produces no free cash flows and therefore has no free cash flow yield and therefore has no way to estimate intrinsic value. Let's talk about another topic, which is the Federal Reserve. Uh, the president has been, some would say, bullying the Fed, telling them not to raise interest rates. Uh, is, what, what are the implications of a president getting so involved in telling, giving his opinions to the Federal Reserve? Very bad. I mean, you know, the history of the Fed that was created in 1913 was to have political independence. And it needed political independence because the whole reason it was created was in the wake of the 1907 collapse. Uh, this country needed a lender of last resort. And it needed a backstop. And that backstop worked fabulously well during 0809. A lot of people don't necessarily think it worked fabulously well, but it did. It saved us from another Great Depression and Ben Bernanke, who is the greatest Fed leader of all time, I hope someday he gets due credit for that. Because instead of having 25% unemployment in soup lines, we had 10% unemployment. And then we had a lot of monetary easing, and it helped restore employment. And so the reality is, by the way, uh, Trump doesn't deserve credit for the employment that we have now. And Obama didn't either. It's Ben Bernanke, because he's the one who reflated the economy. But cut to the next scene, then we had Janet Yellen, and now we have Jerome Powell. And as you said, Trump is bullying the Fed. You know, what, but what that means, I mean, is that he is trying to jawbone them into keeping rates low. And that's extremely dangerous because politicians always want rates low because they always want to goose growth. And they don't care that the fact that goosing growth can lead to hyperinflation. And it does. And we've seen examples of that in Turkey. We've seen examples of that in Venezuela. The Venezuela has a lot of other problems. But the point is this. Inflation can go up and the, and the Fed can lose control of it if it doesn't raise interest rates in time. And you would ask why, you know, a lot of people ask, as Trump does, why ever raise rates? Well, you raise rates because the Fed has a dual mandate. It's supposed to keep its eye on the full employment, but it's also supposed to control inflation. And if you print too much money, you get inflation. So we have to watch out for that. There is no inflation right now. But the problem is that Jerome Powell has to feel that he can act independently. And so far, I see no evidence that he isn't because he raised rates in December, although he hasn't raised rates in the first quarter of this year. But it is very dangerous for the president to interfere with the independence of the central bank because the central bank must feel it can make decisions without repercussions. Why do you think we have not had more inflation? I mean, the balance sheet of the Fed went from 700 billion to four and a half trillion with all the quantitative easing and so on. Why did that not cause more inflation? Well, it's a good question. I, 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 I'm, I'm puzzled by it, but I do think there are some reasons. I think until recently, we did not have truly strong employment figures. I mean, that's really only come in in the past two years, where, you know, where we breached the 4% level and started to get down there, which is what gooses inflation. 
We also haven't had wage growth to any large degree, although that's starting to change. And that's why I think inflation is going to start to change. And then if you're looking not at core inflation, but you're looking at, say, the PCE, which is what the Fed looks at, and not the core PCE, but the broad PCE, energy prices have come down quite a bit um, recently. And, you know, at $56 for crude, you're typically not going to have tremendous inflationary pressures. But then there also seems to be a concern that the economy is now softening. And so what had been a PCE running at 2% is now running at 1.75% in the latest figures. And so it appears that inflation is slowing. But the reality is no one ever knows the reasons for why inflation is growing or slowing. It's always just a supply-demand curve between too much money chasing too few goods and services or vice versa. And it can be created by so many moving parts, there's no way to really hone in on it. So one area you like around the world today are emerging markets, which have pretty much underperformed domestic U.S. markets for quite a while. Uh, why do you like emerging markets and what's the best way to play them? Well, one of the reasons I like them is because they've underperformed. So for the past decade, there's really what you would call a lost decade in emerging markets. They haven't generated any real return above and beyond the inflation rate in any great way. Meanwhile, the S&P over the past 10 years has generated 15 16% annualized. So as we know, stock returns always revert to the mean eventually. So U.S. returns that have been doing 15 or 16% a year for 10 years have to get back to 10% at some point because that's their average annualized return over the past 100 years. How do they get back there? By having lower than average returns. Emerging market stocks have generated far less, 6 to 8% a year over the past 10 years. And we know that emerging market stocks, however, generate even higher returns than domestic stocks, typically 11 or 12% annualized. So to get back there, they have to do much better than 11 or 12% over the next 10 years. So reversion to the mean is one of the reasons I am excited about emerging markets. But the main reason, since I am a value investor, is that the free cash flow yields on emerging market stocks are so much higher than the free cash flow yields on U.S. domestic stocks. And to give you an example of that, on the S&P 500 right now, which is trading at a really most conservative estimate of 15 to 16 times earnings, adjusted for free cash flows, that's maybe a 6% free cash flow yield. And emerging market stocks are trading at anywhere from a 9 to 11% free cash flow yield, depending on how you calculate it and reconcile the accounting. But if we call it 10% versus 6%, and emerging markets now have a dividend of 3.3% versus the S&P's 2%. And usually those things are reversed because typically emerging markets have a higher growth rate than U.S. stocks, and they still do now, even with China slowing. And so typically emerging market stocks trade at a lower dividend yield and a lower free cash flow yield. So we have a real reversal of the natural order of things. And over the next 10 years, of course, I can't make any guarantees, especially on your show, but I would be very surprised if emerging market stocks over the next 10 years did not do uh, reasonably better than the S&P 500. Are there some specific uh, exchange-traded funds that you like as a way to play emerging markets? Absolutely. Um, one of my favorites is the Schwab Emerging Markets ETF. The ticker symbol is S. 
C is in cat, H-E, C-S-C-H-E. Uh, one of the reasons I love that ETF is it's so low cost. It has a 13 basis point expense ratio. So that's very low cost even to purchase an indexed basket of emerging market stocks. And for that very low cost, you get extraordinary diversification, which is very important in emerging markets because things can go wrong with individual stocks or even individual countries. So one of the advantages that it has is that it is invested in uh, approximately 950 stock holdings. So that is diversification for you. And of those holdings, not one of them is more than 5% of the portfolio, and many of them are under 1% of the portfolio. And so that is a way in which you can buy a basket indexed of emerging market stocks across many different countries, so diversified across countries, currencies, and companies, and uh, for a very low cost, 13 basis point expense ratio, uh, own that and own it for 10 years as an investment. And there's one particular stock that you like in China that you think is uh, fast-growing and undervalued. What would be that your favorite there? Well, my favorite is Tencent Holdings, which is actually the top holding in the SCHE. So be careful if you buy the SCHE, that then you don't overweight yourself in Tencent Holdings by then buying a huge position in that. But Tencent Holdings is a company that uh, has superb growth rates, superb returns on invested capital, and a good free cash flow yield, and uh, has been forsaken by the market over the past couple of years on fears of Chinese slowing growth, which is quite legitimate, but it's starting to stabilize now, I would say. And uh, based on the fact that China, for a while, banned its ability to issue video games, which are a large source of its revenue. But China is now relaxing those restrictions, uh, has made hints at relaxing them fully, and I expect that over time those video games will come back online. But video games is not their only business. They're an internet portal. They are tremendously powerful uh, internet services company that's in everything from games to portals to social networks to shopping, and then finally money payments and transfers, which is going to be a great business in China over the next several years. And its five-year annualized return on equity is 31%, which puts most American companies to shame. And its return on invested capital, which is a metric Buffett uses to look at profitability, or even over the past five years where their sales have slowed dramatically, is 20%. So that is a company with tremendous prospects uh, that is selling at what I would certainly consider as a discount to its intrinsic value. So, for example, because we are talking value investing, uh, the stock is trading at $347 today. And I recommend buying the um, uh, the um, foreign ordinaries, which ticker symbol is TCEHY. That's trading at $347 today. And Morningstar, which does a discounted cash flow valuation the same way Buffett does, or the same way I was doing free cash flow yields, puts the fair value at $499. Yeah. So significantly above the market price. And my own, I do my own worst case estimates tweaking the Morningstar data 
And I don't see how the stock is worth less than $400 a share, uh, even if you took away the whole video game business. So I like to look for opportunities like that, where even if you took away a whole arm of business, what is likely to come back, the business still is trading at an intrinsic value way above the market price and using punishing assumptions. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is James Berman, president and founder of jbglobal.com. He's a value investor, as you can see. You can find out more at his website, jbglobal.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is James Berman, president and founder of jbglobal.com. You can find out more at his website, jbglobal.com. Welcome back to the show, James. Thank you. Among other things, you did a book called Lessons from the Lemonade Stand, A Common Sense Primer of Investing. Just tell us briefly what that book is about. Well, it's a digital book, first of all, so it's not, it's not a print book. It can only be downloaded on your Kindle or your iPhone, um, but, and I self-published it. But the reason I did the book was I wanted to design a primer that I thought would be good uh, to explain all the concepts of investment through the one prism, which is that of supply and demand, because I feel that really uh, is the overriding and unifying concept of everything in the investment world. And despite the cover, which is splashy with colors, and despite the title, and despite using a lemonade stand as the example, uh, it's not a kid's book, although my daughter did read it. She's 12 years old, and she liked it. So there was one copy sold, (laughs) but... The reality is that uh, it's for any person of any age, but for a person who has no investment background. So it's designed for someone who wants to learn about stocks and bonds, uh, and 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 fairly that limited area, but without uh, any financial background. And that's why I used you know the lemonade stand as the unifying principle. And it's not original to use a lemonade stand as a unifying principle about a business, but it's a good way to talk about stocks and bonds. It's a good way to talk about leverage, investing, and margin. It's a good way to talk about the dangers of that. 
And it's a good way to talk about uh, what it means when you buy a stock. Because as I started off the interview of the hour, I was trying to explain that what Buffett does and what I try to do, and the most important thing about all this value investing stuff, is looking at stocks for what they are, which is the claims on the cash flows of a business by an owner. Yeah, And there's no better way to understand that from the most American and simplest of businesses, the lemonade stand. So you are in the, uh, re- the value investing religion. I guess the Pope uh, of that religion is Warren Buffett. Uh, sure is. His annual letters. Uh, you, you wrote about one of his most recent annual letters. What, what are, give us some of the gems you've, you've taken from that and how you apply that to your own investing style. Well, I always take, I think the most important thing Buffett has to offer in his investing approach, aside from the idea of looking at stocks as businesses, is the idea of not over-leveraging yourself. I mean, this is good advice whether you're a stock investor or you're a real estate investor or you're running a business. And all that means is not taking on too much debt because reality is there are a lot of um, temptations to take on debt. You know, it juices returns. It makes things easier. It makes you look richer. allows you to buy a bigger house. But debt always comes back to haunt you. So this is why I love Warren Buffett's a uh, quote on leverage where he says, if you're smart, you don't need it. And if you're dumb, it'll ruin you. So for the rest of us mere mortals like myself who are somewhere in between, hopefully, why bother? And so I always recommend to people, never, ever invest on margin. You know, in margin, when you're investing on margin, you're investing on borrowed money. And even if you do it moderately, you can lose a lot of money quick if stocks move against you, if your positions move against you, because there can be margin calls where the brokerage seizes the collateral, which is the stock in the account. So I always warn people about that, but where do I get that warning from? It's from Buffett. So uh, he's actually the opposite right now. He's got like $100 billion in cash or something. He hasn't been able to find anything <laughs> big to invest in in quite a while. And people are criticizing for sitting on all this cash, earning pretty much nothing these days. Uh, is, is that a smart move for him to be sitting on piles of cash? That may not be, and he certainly, as you point out, he's certainly gone all the way in the other direction. <laughs> and it's, you know, typical financial planning advice is keep six months living expenses in cash, but invest the rest. Sitting on a hundred and some odd billion dollars, you're keeping a lot more than six months living expenses, even for Berkshire Hathaway in cash. Uh, I think he's subject to a lot of criticism there because there's a lot of pressure on him to at least buy back stock. Or pay a bigger dividend because, you know, as with any company, if you don't see opportunities, and he may not see opportunities, one of his great talents is not feeling compelled to overpay for opportunities just to put money to work. He doesn't, he never lets money burn a hole in his pocket. But I think he's subject to, uh, and this is where I, you know, this is where I take issue with my, this is my heresy against my own religion here, but he really should be. If he's not putting that to work, buying businesses, he should be buying back more stock. He says he's going to be doing it, but he should also be paying a dividend at this point. I mean, he should be returning that money to shareholders. You can't sit on $100 billion. It's too yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his performance in the long run has been great, but it has not been great the last five years, even 10 years. I mean, he's barely matched the S&P 500, I guess, to some extent. So do yes. you think he's lost his touch or just that value investing has not been uh, working lately? Well, I do think a big part of it is the cyclicality of value investing. But in his case, he's got other problems, which is he's so big. 
and he's got so much cash. And sitting on $100 billion in cash is going to reduce your returns on equity dramatically. So he's got that problem, and he's got the problem that he can't find any wholly owned businesses that he said you know he can use his elephant gun to hunt down, which would be the $25 billion, $50 billion business. And he can't find any of those at the right price because there's so much private equity money sloshing around. Interest rates are still so low. Leveraged buyouts are easy to do. So he can't find a place to put his money to work. I, uh, and if he invests in the public markets, it's even harder because, you know, when you invest billions of dollars, you boost the price of the stock you're buying. You inadvertently affect the market price and buy it more expensively. So he's got challenges that are unique to Buffett, but I would also say that he is suffering from the cyclical underperformance of value. I think what will be really important for people to watch for if you are a Buffett watcher is over the next five years, as value investing comes back into vogue, because I expect it will, because we're due, to see if Buffett does better, and especially to see if he does better by boosting dividends and buying back shares, which will reduce his book value, which will increase his return on equity. Which if you were running a Berkshire Hathaway yourself, do you think you could find value investments that would be worth $25, $50 billion would be good investments for them? If he can't do it, I can't do it. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only one hundredth at best as smart, so I don't see how I could figure it out. And I trust him. If, but then, as I say, he can do simple things that I could figure out, like pay dividends and buy back stock. <laughs> so, yeah. Tell people briefly about your money management business. What is your minimum investment, and uh, tell us a little bit of how that well, all works. Well, I work primarily with high net, what they call high net worth individuals, uh, which is you know often not as high net worth as people think, but it does mean $2 million in investable assets. That's my minimum. And people often say to me, oh my God, why $2 million? I only have 200000 The reason is because included in my fee and my service is full financial planning, unlimited financial planning. So you can talk to me each year for two hours or 100 hours, and get as much financial planning on retirement, insurance, taxes, and whatever else. And so in order to have the resources to do that, I really can only take large accounts at this point. When I first started my business, I took $100,000 accounts. But now my minimum is $2 million, which I know is off-putting or impossible for a lot of people. But I have to do that to preserve the service I give to my existing clientele. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been James Berman president and founder of jbglobal.com. As you can see, he's a registered investment advisor, also does financial planning. Uh, he's got this book out called Lessons from the Lemonade Stand. You can find out more about all of this at jbglobal.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, James. Jordan, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.